Good morning. It's Saturday, November 21st, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, the, one of the deputy editors here of Airmail. Welcome to the show. Michael, we had such fantastic feedback about our extra optimistic edition last weekend, so we have to try to top that by being even more optimistic than usual. Well, there's good optimism news today and this week. We got another vaccine sort of moving down the road, right? Two vaccines, two vaccines. It's very exciting. These guys are testing better, by the way, than I ever tested at a math test in my entire academic career. It's like 90%, 95%. <laughs> the statistics are incredible. Well done, scientists. Speaking of vaccines, and one of them, of course, is from Pfizer. So Pfizer, of course, leading the, leading one of the, one of the, one of the vaccines. But this week, Spike Lee announced his next project. He's going to direct a musical in London that he's co-writing. And the musical is based on another Pfizer product. Do you know what it was? Viagra. Viagra, exactly. I won the news quiz. What's your headline? Standing ovation? <laughs> Standing tall. <laughs> so we can all look forward to, you know, Pfizer, they're making our lives better, not just every day, but even in, in the world of arts. So there you go. It's something to look forward to. Good times. We're going to need a lot to look forward to, Michael, because we're going to be spending a lot of time indoors by ourselves. Well, that's where Viagra comes in handy. <laughs> okay, so, Michael, we have to talk about the elephant in the room here, okay? Yes. Have you seen every episode of The Crown, or are you pacing yourself? I need something to look forward to and something to pace me through the next eight, ten weeks, maybe until January. So I am treating The Crown like it's only coming out once a week. So I've seen episode one. Wow. Okay. Good times. Just to remind you, I am I, I raised Catholic. You want to know all about delayed gratification? I've learned it. I practice it to my detriment. So, yes. So if you want to do any spoiler alerts, I think I can really participate because I know the storyline. So I'm not going to be so surprised, but... Let's go at it. What do you want to talk about? No, we, we won't even go there. Um, we'll, we got This has to be the gift that keeps on giving. But I did email Peter Morgan asking him to come on the show. Peter, if you're listening, we'll make ourselves available whenever you have a spare moment. We really need to talk about this, okay? Because I really want to know how the show was cast, where they found all these great actors. It seems like every time they introduce a new actor onto The Crown, he or she is more of a revelation than the previous one. And this year, the star is unequivocally Gillian Anderson, who plays Margaret Thatcher. I mean, it's creepy. It's eerily similar to how she was. Uh, the makeup and hair is incredible. The wardrobe, like every single piece of this show is just so thoughtfully done. Yeah, that show wow. also gives me like major barber envy. Like my husband, I've been wearing my husband's barber jacket that he's had for per 25 years now at this point. Um, and it's derelict and falling apart. And I always think it's like the best barber jacket in the world. And then you see the ones in the crown, which like someone's been wearing for 40 years, just in preparation of shooting those scenes, you know, when they're at, when they're out hunting at, where is it? In um... Balmoral. Balmoral, of course. My favorite scene in episode one is when Diana catches Charles exiting um, the fairgrounds where he's just watched his sister jump. And um, 
She conveys her condolences for the death of Mountbatten. What I love is, you know, how Peter Morgan stages it where you've got Charles sitting in his little sport, sports car, his little roadster. Diana's literally crossed his path. But in the background, as she's talking to him, you see this carousel turning around, right, in the background. And it's sort of like Charles has no idea he's about to get on the ride of his life. Ooh. A real carousel, a real sort of um, a, a merry-go-round. So. Beautiful little moment there that I loved. Michael, you just find metaphors wherever you go. It's a mark of a good filmmaker. Well, first of all, Michael, let's just talk about the issue, okay? It is, after all, Saturday. We have a new issue of Airmail, and there's a lot of good stuff in it. First up, I think we need to talk about mode operandi. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, this is our piece by Mark Elwood, and it is about Moda Operandi, the fashion e-tailor, retailer that was founded about 10 years ago by two women, Lauren Santo Domingo and Aslog Magnus Daughter. You're familiar with Moda Operandi. Why don't you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about it? Michael, I have been living in New York and working in the fashion industry since 2004, okay? I know Moda Operandi, uh, and I'm very familiar with Lauren Santo Domingo and the lore surrounding her. So this was always very interesting to me. She sort of fashions herself as the next Babe Paley, and in many ways, she's her equal in terms of style and influence and this presence that she's been in New York society, quote-unquote, for you know nearly 20 years at this point. And she founded Moda Operandi along with Aslaug, Magnus' daughter, in 2012, I believe. Anyway, but we should have Mark on to talk about this because it's such a fascinating uh, rise and fall story. And those are always our favorite kinds over at Airmail. Mark Elwood, welcome to Morning Meeting. Thank you so much for joining us. Your piece left me with my jaw on the floor for 20 minutes. How did this story come together? I hope you've picked your jaw up now, Ashley, right? Like, just just, just relax. That'd be okay. Uh, Mark, it took a couple days for me to fully recover. This is the kind of impact journalism we're talking about. <laughs> I think hopefully we're bringing really good gum, shoe leather reporting to quite a frothy subject. I love sort of combining that. I think you know you're writing a piece that has reason to exist when everyone you speak to says, you know, have you spoken to so-and-so? Because I think they, they probably have something to add. And it corkscrewed. It was a bit like spinning a dreidel and you expect it to come sort of to rest at some point and it just gets faster and faster and faster. Well, it had it had all the great elements. You've got lots of VC money. You've got Vogue socialites. You've got fashion. And you've got the lead, which I love, which is the Met Ball 2013 gala and Moda Operandi and Lauren Santa Domingo wants to host this. There's one problem. They don't have the money to spare on this, right? It felt like something I should have been reading about happening in 2006. In 2013, when that all occurred, it was post-Great Recession, and it summed up something about Moda's direction, which was just out of time. This would have been a great company in sort of 2006, 2007, go-go days. But all the things it was trying to do didn't fit with the post-Recession instant world. And, And, you know... No startup should be spending multi, multi million dollars on a sponsorship that's largely just going to be about, hey, 
Someone might notice your name's above the door. Couldn't you just buy a ticket to, to the dinner? I mean, surely that's a, that's a better expenditure and just lug the room. But see, Mark, the interesting thing to me about this whole story is that, you know, is Lauren Santo Domingo the brand or is the brand Lauren Santo Domingo? Because for Lauren Santo Domingo to spend money on a partnership with Vogue makes no sense to me because she's always been so synonymous with Vogue. And I think that's a challenge. I think what this is, many startups tell this story, but this has an interesting free song because it's not a startup about digital, you know, digital data or, or a Zoom rival. It's a fashion company. And it is this weird company that, let's remember, was not started by Lauren Santa Domingo. One of the things that I find bizarre, shall we say, is that the real woman who founded it has been sort of airbrushed out of the story. Not mentioned as, oh, you know, our Emerita co-founder, or in some way you can always work, you can sort of do the verbiage if there's a difficult problem. But she just has evaporated from the story. And it was her idea. So Lauren's sort of identification with the company is extra interesting because it wasn't even her idea. And Lauren was the perfect kind of sprinkle, seasoning to sprinkle all over the idea. But just like you don't want to eat a mouthful of salt, Lauren was better when she was just the seasoning on top of the dish. So let's just, let's just pause it for the, for the listener here. So the company started 2013. They now, according to your story, have burned through $345 million of VC money, right? Their valuation, which at one point was, we estimate $650 million. Who knows where it is now? And the word on the street in New York is that they are basically shopping themselves around, trying to find a suitor, trying to find someone whether it's Amazon or someone to acquire them and let them sort of, as they say in the VC world, sort of like have a graceful exit, but we know it's sort of just trying to sort of like get out with saving some face, right? Sure. Forgive me a tortured analogy. I think, you know, Moda has been through many, many series of funding. And even if you're not a Silicon Valley insider, you know that once you're starting to get to sort of series F, that's a weird letter to get to. You've been hanging around a bit too long. And a bit like at a debutante ball, there are only so many seasons you can come out into before you miss the chance to get married. And, I, you know, Moda, if it were a debutante, would be on its sort of seventh or eighth season and still hoping someone's going to say, hey, I choose you. Uh, and I, I think, you know, maybe they will. Of course, why not? I'd love to talk to you about sort of this cult figure of Lauren Santa Domingo. Uh, you know, she's such a well-known creature in New York society, right? And she has been for going on 20 years at this point. What were your impressions of her like when you first started reporting the piece and how did they evolve over the course of the journalistic exercise? She couldn't work out whether she loved or hated her job at Motor Operandi. And I felt like she was incredibly conflicted because there were periods when people said to me, she's never in the office. We used her office as another conference room. So she was not devoted to the company. But every time it seemed like she was just going to say, you know what, it's fine. I'll just, I'll just appear in some photo shoots and do some Instagrams for the company. She would sort of slalom back in and take control again. And so I felt like she's really conflicted and didn't quite know whether she wanted to be a hands-on business woman or not, and tended not to look 
to anyone to give her counsel. Well, I think ultimately the, the great irony here is that I do believe that Lauren Santa Domingo is one of the top editors of her generation, right? She just has an incredible eye and a way of putting things together and especially a way of putting herself together, right? And living this curated life that few could dare to rival. And to me that she would be a big asset as part of the company, except we do have a lot of these HR issues that you lay out in your piece. So can you tell us a bit about kind of the corporate culture at Moda and how that unfolded? And I think this is, you know, the, the, piece, the piece talks about sort of three eras at Moda, which correspond to, you know, three co-leaders that Lauren worked alongside were currently in sort of Moda 3.0. From my sources, it wasn't really until the current era that it really became a very difficult place to work. And there have been lots of problems about sort of interpersonal a, a lot of a lot of racial dynamics that we talk about in the piece some 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 stories that that staff, staffers of color told me that made them feel very uncomfortable especially in a in a post BLM world but what do you think is the in your if, if you had to game it out for them oh, I think you're right Michael I think we've all heard that it's for sale I think it will sell to a private company in some way or there will be a merger with LVMH that somehow allows the numbers to be a little fudged because I think everyone in fashion is looking to save face. I think it's very hard for it to sell at its valuation to, to justify all the money that's gone in. Remember, Lauren is a woman who is surrounded by slightly inauthentic sounding stories. I think of her as a bit like a female Jay Gatsby, where they may be true, they may not, but the fact that she loves all, all the walls painted blush pink because it's great for your skin tone, and that's what the Duchess of Windsor said, that could be true. It also sounds like something a novelist says about one of their characters. So I think Moda will disappear in another sort of slightly implausible story that has plausible deniability of truth. Mark, it's a terrific story. Thanks for, for all your intrepid reporting. Beautiful, Mark, and um, we look forward to the next one. Absolutely. All right, Michael, moving on to something a little more delicious. Rachel Johnson has uh, written about a new book called Scoth. And in it, it tells you exactly how to determine someone's social standing based on what they eat and when they eat it. Now, I live in fear that someone is going to do this to me because it would not be a pretty picture. This is kind of my nightmare come true about, in fact, there's a scene that Rachel Johnson, who I just want to interject, is the sister of the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, writing for Airmail. As she says in here, there's, there's, a, there's a moment where it's not just what you eat that determines how they look at you, but how you eat. So she talks about how some top firms in the UK insist on seeing a prospective employee at the table. They take them to lunch or her to lunch, right, to check if that that person is not, as they like to say, HKLP which means holds knife like a pen. Or he does something like eats his asparagus with a fork. So I read this the other day when it comes through, I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, honestly, Michael, Rachel would be horrified if she knew the way that I ate. Like right now it's 1135. All I've had today is a Diet Coke and about 18 cups of coffee. I'm probably going to rock out with like a piece of toast and butter for lunch, uh, maybe a handful of carrots. I mean, look, these are pandemic times, guys. You can't hold it all against us. She quotes Nikki Haslam in here, and Nikki says that truffles are common. So we can't even have truffles anymore? Come on. I mean, also, you know, I, I do always judge people by their the contents of their fridge and also, like, the organization of their fridge. You know, I'm sorry. I'm just one of those people. Like, to me, a well-stocked, well-organized fridge is the mark of a life well-lived. 
Um, so that I kind of get more, but you know, the asparagus with a fork thing, come on. Like, I don't want olive oil all over my hands when I'm having lunch. I'm just not using my fingers for that. I'm sorry. So if you came to my house, yeah, would you rather snoop in my medicine chest or my refrigerator? Fridge. Way more telling. <laughs> wow. You didn't even hesitate. Who cares what meds you're on? I mean, like anyone with a good doctor has like a fully stocked pharmaceutical cabinet at home these days. Am I right? You've already told me about the Viagra, so there are no revelations left. But the fridge, that's going to give me the information I need to know. I never said I use Viagra. I'm simply saying I'm aware aware of it. I've admitted on this show to having a nice stock of Klonopin, which I offered to share with you leading up to the election. Thank you. Uh, I'll ask Brooke about this. Look, no need, you know, this is the problem with uh, the fact that I know how to get in touch with your wife. Sorry, Michael. Yes. One of our columnists has come out with a fantastic new book, Cassie David. So Cassie David is, she's a Gen Z icon, Hollywood royalty, and a wonderful and talented writer. And she has a new essay collection out. It's called No One Asked For This. She's written some great columns for Airmail about uh, all things Instagram, uh, you know, Uh, She writes really funny stuff for us, frankly, all the time. We call her our unofficial Instagram columnist. Um, But she's did a great interview with Alessandra Stanley as part of our Plus One series. And we're so fortunate to have Kazi and Alessandra having a delightful conversation here. Welcome, guys. We're here to talk about everything, but especially your book. And um, as you know, I thought it was wonderful and I think that this is something that people are going to be especially grateful for now because of everything that's going on with uh, COVID and stuff. But um, let's talk about a little bit about where we are now, because you, everybody wants to know where you were when you heard the news that Biden kind of won. Um, I was like in bed, like just, you know, it was pretty early. Actually, I don't know what time it might've been like noon. And then I'm saying like it was early and um, I was in bed still, which is embarrassing, but (laughs) Yeah, I was I was in bed and it was very exciting. Where were you? Uh, I was uh, not in bed, but um, watching. But you know, I didn't feel exhilarated. I just felt nervous and worried. And, and it is the first. It's weird that it was like the we all kind of collectively decided not to get excited early. <laughs> where usually with those things, there's like a celebrity who like gets too excited and then everyone like cancels them. Like they're like, it's not <laughs> over yet. But everyone seemed to be like very patient, and it was. Um, it was nice that we all kind of didn't freak out too early. I laughed so much about uh, about and with your mother. <laughs> yeah. Can we just explain the whole electric car salesman <laughs> thing? Yes, yeah, so, I know this. So in the book, I I write about this, but basically, when I was younger, my mom was constantly trying to get everyone we we knew to buy an electric car. Um, and like, she would go at my school, like in the carpool lane, she would try and talk to people in SUVs, like other parents, like to get an electric car. Um, and like, I don't know, like she knew like the person who was, who's made the electric car or like what it was, but I was just totally convinced she was like an electric car salesman. Cause why else would someone be <laughs> trying to sell electric cars all the time? <laughs> But she's just such an interesting person because her entire well-being is based on the state of the world or the state of the environment. So it was like a weird thing to grow up with because I never felt like I was getting attention because she was so obsessed with stopping global warming or like people buying electric cars. If she has a, had a husband and a child who were constantly teasing her, did it 
did she? No, nothing derailed her. Nothing. I talk about this in the book too, but there was an episode of South Park that made fun of her for um, printing these like tickets that she wrote like um, this vehicles in violation of like polluting the planet. And she would put them on people's cars. Um, this is probably why I'm like so embarrassed about everything is because like this was my mom, um, but South Park totally parodied her and they did an episode with Al Gore and they used her doing the tickets and she just like, couldn't have given her any less shame. Like it was, she was did she find it amusing or she thought that maybe it would convince people to buy an electric car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were in lockdown with Larry David for months. True. And um, one would expect that to be hilarious but difficult, but it sounds like you actually got along really well. We, you know, the safety protocols for us, we agreed upon. And I think that's the problem in most people's households is that they like have different ways of right. tackling this pandemic. Um, the problem for us was not like whether we agreed upon packages coming in the house or seeing people it was that he forgot all the time that we were in a pandemic so we would be like of course we're not going to see anyone like it's covid and then he would have a friend over like three hours after that conversation i'd be like dad like it's it's covid that's so funny that's so role reversal i mean like oh my god like right like, i forgot like you gotta go <laughs> um, he'd be like kaz let's go to dinner tonight i'm like dad like it's covid it was just like constantly <laughs> Me reminding him that there's a virus. <laughs> but he is a little bit phobic as well, right? Germophobic? Yeah, but he's as absent-minded as he is okay. germophobic. That's terrible. Yeah. No, he's his own worst enemy. It's great to see you. Thank you for taking the time. And I hope to see and hear you very soon. Me too. Thank you. You know, talking just a minute ago there, Ashley, about feeling like insecure about your house and, and how you live, your refrigerator versus your menu. But uh, what I love in, in this piece this week in, in Airmail that Cassie did is she talks about, you know, everyone thinks like, God, Larry David, I'd love to hang out with that guy all the time, right? And as Cassie sort of like puts a pin in that saying like, you want to have Larry David? My father is your roommate. This is what it's like. And so very funny piece this week. I just encourage you all to read about what it's like to really live under the same roof or with Larry David. You know, Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm got me through uh, the first two months of lockdown back. Well, now the book will get you maybe through at least one day of the next lockdown. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Michael, on a cultural note, uh, we have a great little close up about um, the new film adaptation of Hillbilly Elegy, which is coming to Netflix near you very soon, uh, in just a few weeks, in fact. And it was adapted by Ron Howard, and it was written by Vanessa Taylor, who uh, co-wrote The Shape of Water. The book was buzzy. I read it. I really enjoyed it. Not necessarily for the writing style, which to me was left a lot to be desired, but just the sheer storytelling within it, I thought was so illuminating and um, blunt. And it's an all-star cast in this. Uh, We've got Glenn Close, who who plays the grandmother. We have Amy Adams, who plays the mother. And the ensemble also stars Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore, and Brian Tyree Henry, who was known for If Beale Street Could Talk. This is going to be can't-miss television, folks. And it's coming out on Netflix on November 24th. Is there anything else, Michael, that you're watching that you can't get enough of? You you know what I'm over the moon about? Tell me. Because I've only, as you know, I'm only taking the crown one episode at a time, but I'm over the moon about Queen's Gambit. Who isn't, Michael? Okay, 
So this is like, you know, if you thought the, the, the chess scene in Thomas Crown Affair between Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway was sexy, this is eight whole hours of it. If you, seen, if you saw the, the movie of Emma earlier this year, you saw Anya Taylor-Joy, and she's fantastic in this. But what, what's really amazing, like, this movie is the Rocky of chess. Michael, for me, the real revelation in this is not Anya Taylor-Joy, because I've known for a while how great she is. It's Marielle Heller, who plays the mother Heller's really known as a director. She directed The Diary of a Teenage Girl, which I loved. Can You Ever Forgive Me, which starred Kathy Bates. And also A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which was the Fred Rogers drama starring Tom Hanks. So she's got, you know, quite quite an accomplished career as a director. And she's done some acting in the past, too. But I think she really shines in this. Her performance is uh, so nuanced and complicated. And I, I just can't stop watching her. Have you met the character Benji yet? No. The, the guy with the, like the cowboy hat with the knife. Who's oh, the, yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I forgot his name. Yes, Vegas. Okay, Thomas Brody Sangster. Do you recognize this guy? I recognize him from something. I don't know what it's from, though. He's from one of my favorite movies ever, Love Actually. What? He's the kid from Love Actually. That's right. Oh, my God. Okay, thank you. Thank you. His face looks so familiar. It was from a distant memory, but Wow crazy right we gotta get the casting director on here my other mind blowers like everyone's like it must be a true story why okay, imagine it's true. okay it's not a true story it's based on a novel and uh written by a guy named walter tebis right so he died about 30 years ago american novelist and short story right but what's amazing about this guy this novel of his has been bouncing around Hollywood for a long time. People, Different people have tried to adapt it. But he wrote not just this book, right, but he also wrote the novel The Hustler, which became uh, the film starring Paul Newman. And then he wrote a book called The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was directed by Nicholas Rogue, starred David Bowie, right? And then he wrote The Color of Money, which was adapt- you know, directed by Martin Scorsese. So this guy who very, very few people knew of him even before that. And yet, look at look at those books he wrote that became adapted and became gigantic films in the American uh, sort of pantheon. And now he's got uh, this adaptation. So I looked up his obit in the New York Times. I love this quote of his. He said, originally I wanted to be a poet. He said, and I used to compose a daily sonnet on the way to the pool room in Lexington, Kentucky. I learned about gambling after enlisting in the Navy on my 17th birthday, I played poker for 17 months in Okinawa. That was the background of the pool pool room hustler. Um, so fantastic uh, life and obviously amazing writer. Yeah, I mean, there's so much talent behind this show. It's staggering. We got to get the casting director on here. I'm still trying to find his or her name. Yeah, and Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah, we love her. We love her. One of my friends used to style her, actually. I don't know if she still is doing it, but um, my friend Alaria Urbanati out in L.A., too cool. Well, so she used to model too, right? Yeah, she used to model. I mean, she's pretty incredible looking. You can tell she models because when she walks into any room in the show, she just has this. Yeah, she wears incredibly she, well too. Yeah, and by the way, I do want to point out the music in the in the in the in the show. Yeah, the, the, those sixty songs that pop in every so often. Yeah, all courtesy of Airmail's music supervisor and all around music genius. Randall Poster. Randy, we should have known you'd be involved in this somehow. Okay. 
There's one thing, Michael, that our little show has in common with Queen's Gambit, and it's Randy Poster. We're fortunate. We told you that themes found we used at the beginning, sent to us, and, and, and found in the music were archives by Randall Poster. He's the best. Oh, Michael, on a house note, big bummer news out of London, okay? Tell us about what happened in Chelsea. So this is a great story by Joseph Bulmore out of London. You may be familiar if you live in New York or London or some of these sort of cities where billionaires are buying up townhouses. And there's a thing that usually happens is they can't build up. They always want to add on. They can't build up because of zoning restrictions or uh, different things. And they can't build sideways, obviously, because everything's sort of cheek by jowl. So what they do is they usually dig down. They like, Right behind me, where I live here on 11th Street, there's a guy who spent two years digging down. He, he, he put in a screening room, built, put in a pool, which is oftentimes what these people do. They did in London. So a week or so ago in London, there was an $8 million four-story townhouse in Burton Court that simply collapsed, sort of fell in on itself. And the reason why they believe it happened is because, again, one of these houses there dug down and then sort of, but didn't stabilize it properly. So the whole thing sort of just fell in on itself. And, uh, these sort of mega basements where you get these, these subterranean quarters. A lot of them are found in Kensington and Chelsea. Two or more, they say, have had pools down there. One even had, a, had an artificial beach, it was revealed. You know, there's a little bit of, I think, schadenfreude. Someone was taken. You know, you don't want to see someone lose their house. But really, like, if you've got an artificial beach in your basement and your house kind of doesn't fall in on itself, maybe you're, you're asking for it. Am I being too mean, Ashley? you mean i get it i mean it feels a little bit gauche to like celebrate the destruction of someone's family home as they're trying to portray it in the press but this is typical sort of over the top 0.01 percent or excess i think and so there is a certain degree of comeuppance that londoners are enjoying here as joseph points out between um in the last there was a 10-year period where in, in across uh, london's wealthiest boroughs there were more, more than four thousand properties have been granted basement planning permissions. It was the sort of like expansion uh, that everyone wanted to do. So just a, you know, curious little story out of London. Yeah. I love how he talks to about the basements being very, you know, that they keep building down and down and down and the basements are really effective for tax purposes. It reminded me of this anecdote I heard about Greece from some of my friends who live in Athens. They were telling me that in Greece, there is a tax on swimming pools. <laughs> and so people don't report them. Right. But if you take like aerial photography of Greece, you're going to see like, you know, hundreds of thousands of swimming pools, but officially in the country, there's a comically low number. It's something like a couple thousand uh, because people just don't want to report them because then they have to get taxed on them. And then if, you know, if the inspector comes by, uh, you know, you cover it up and put a bunch of plants over it or, you know, who knows what it is. Maybe you could just put some like goldfish in and call it a really big koi pond or something. Totally. It's just, an, it's just a natural body of water in the backyard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of reflecting pool. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right. Well, Michael, uh, I suppose we should get back to our uh, isolated television watching slash working on next week's edition of Airmail, where we've got, uh, by the way, guys, if you have any, uh, if, you, if you are going to do some gift shopping this year, we have kicked off our Airmail gift guide, and it's got tons of great ideas. Every single pick has been approved by Graydon Carter himself. You are in excellent hands. And we encourage you to let us do the dirty work for you this season. The dirty work with very... Nicely manicured fingers. Exactly. Exactly. We have gone to the trouble of shopping so you don't have to.
So, Michael, on that, again, excessively optimistic note, will you please read us out? I will read us out. And I just want to say, Ashley, let's let's just, for those, since it'll be, should we wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving? Yes. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We love you all. And we wish you a socially distant and very safe and restorative holiday. And many Zoom toasts with friends and family. On that note, I just would like to say Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor, as I just told you, is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. Special thanks to Joe Perzicki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail News, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, and you can find Ashley and myself on Instagram. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify. And most of all, thank you for joining us and happy Thanksgiving.